Hello, and welcome back to the Sidekick Critic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby, and I'm delighted to have you here with me for yet another edition of this film and entertainment industry podcast. Make sure you follow me on all my socials, at Sidekick Critic. Uh, I post stories on Instagram about industry news quite frequently. I post TikTok clips uh, recapping what movies I've watched. I log every single movie I've seen on Letterboxd. Every single movie I watch is logged on Letterboxd. So make sure you download Letterboxd and follow me on there so you can see what I'm watching and keep up. I watch a lot of movies in a given month. I think October is at 23 total movies plus four short films. So 27 logs in total. It's a lot of fun to log your movies. It's a lot of fun to go back and rate movies that you know you've seen, that you really liked or really disliked, see what your friends are rating movies. Once again, another free spot for Letterboxd because I love that app so much. I'm on there every day. Follow me on there at Sidekick Critic. It's been about two weeks since I've been here. I believe the last episode I did was my Halloween episode. So I have a lot to talk about today. I have a lot to talk about in coming episodes, but unfortunately... I can only talk about so much in a given episode, so I really only have two topics to discuss today, but the most important one, I'm sure you've seen me post about on social media. If you're listening to this, you probably already know and have heard, at last, SAG-AFTRA has come to a deal with the studios. Uh, So let's run through a little timeline here of how they actually got to a deal, what's happened in the last week or so that arrived us at a deal finally. So on November 5th, the studios put out what they were calling, through sources, their last, best, and final offer. That terminology specifically is an intimidation tactic used in negotiations because we know for a fact that it would not be their last and final offer. It may be the best they're going to offer for now, but the studios are nothing without the actors and performers. They were always going to submit another offer, so... That kind of language is just meant to scare the membership and the negotiating committee into accepting whatever deal is currently on the table. They actually, I believe, called a previous deal right before the strike their last best and final offer. So that language was not taken seriously by anyone, but was kind of seen as a sign that the studios are approaching their wit's end at negotiations. That was November 5th. So on November 6th, reports are coming out that the AI protections were not at all that SAG-AFTRA was looking for, and that the two sides were still very far apart on that issue in particular. Well, the next day, November 7th, they went back to the table, they discussed more, and both sides continued working at this. And around this time, there were reports coming out that if a deal was not struck in the coming days, the result would be the talks would be broken until the end of the year and that the strike would push into 2024. That was a disaster scenario for everyone involved in the film industry if no production was resumed before the new year, if no promotion was done for movies coming out by the end of the year. It was really looking like the worst case scenario is possible at this point, but I was still holding out hope, and I'm happy I did, because November 8th, late at night, it finally came out that a tentative agreement was reached And the strike was officially called to an end after 118 days. I was actually in a movie when this was announced. I get out and I see 30 minutes ago, tentative agreement, and I was ecstatic. I was so happy to see that the strike finally came to an end and that the actors got hopefully what they were looking for. Followed up November 10th, the national board, 86%, voted to approve that tentative agreement. So what's next? November 14th, which is today, the day I'm recording, the ratification process for members begins. 
I touched on a little bit when I went over the Writers Guild strike and that resolution, but the way these strikes resolved is you have a negotiating committee who deals directly with the studios, who submits counteroffers, their own offers, and builds the terms of this deal together. The negotiating committee works for the national board of the union. The national board is who actually runs the union. They pick who's on the negotiating negotiating committee to talk to the studios. So after the negotiating committee recommended the deal, the national board gets it and they vote to approve it and whether or not to send it to their members for that final ratification. Even though the deal has not been ratified by all of its members and has not been accepted and put in place yet, the strike has officially been called off as of right now. As of November 8th, it's been called off. So that is very exciting. What is in this deal though? What has filled it? I've done a ton of reading so that I can just give you some basic points on it. So we're going to start with uh, one of the less primary asks that we were hearing about from SAG-AFTRA, and that was uh, certain regulations regarding casting and auditions. So producers, that is studios, are not allowed to charge fees for general casting calls. Calls. Apparently it was a, not incredibly common, but a known practice that you would have to pay to submit an audition for a general casting call. That should not be the case. Why should an employee have to pay the employer to apply for a job? It makes no sense. So protections have been put in place for that. No longer can studios require that virtual and self-taped auditions uh, include a memorized script material. That is a lot to ask for someone who is not being paid to memorize a script just for a virtual or self-taped audition. And they cannot require performers to use expensive equipment. Many performers have complained that the requirements for, for submitting an audition tape were expensive. They needed either a camera they couldn't afford or a microphone that they didn't have. It was just a quality and a price point that those background actors submitting a self-recorded audition could not do anything for, and therefore they were priced out of roles. And that makes no sense. One of the asks that the actors did not get, however, is compensation for self-taped auditions. Many of them had said, you know what, if we're taking the time to put together an audition tape for you for a part, we should be compensated for that time. They could not come to agreement for that. There is no compensation. I'm a little split on that issue personally because I get the studio is asking for the audition tapes. So you are putting in time on behalf of the studio. Maybe you should be paid. But from the studio's perspective, you are not working from them at that point. It's essentially like building a resume and filling out an application. So I get both ends. In the end, though, SAG did not get their initial ask of being paid for those self-auditions. One of the few losses, so to say, but that's kind of how these negotiations always work. You're going to get some of what you wanted and you're not going to get some of what you wanted as well. So let's move on to the next big point, uh, the streaming revenue sharing plan. This has been very interesting. It's been kind of an ongoing saga where we've gotten a lot of reports and uh, sources say regarding what has been happening with this negotiation. Initially, the union was looking for 2% of the streaming profits. That's a massive ask, especially for companies that care so much about profit, to ask for 2% of that profit. That's 2% right off of their bottom line. It was almost never going to happen. There was not a chance in hell, really. Well, after that became clear, the union lowered their ask to 1% of those profits. Once again, if you're asking to cut a studio's bottom line, 
Maybe you can get one of them to agree to that because they say, you know what, 1%, we can handle that to get back to work, to keep actors happy and possibly keep this going for the next deal. But you're never going to get the AMPTP as a whole to agree to it. So once again, the union scaled back. And this was a major point of contention when this came out that they're asking for a 59 cent subscriber levy. So that is for every subscriber, the studios would get 59 cents per month per subscriber. Once again, not going to happen because that's cutting directly into their revenue source. I understand why the actors were asking for this because the work they put in probably makes up for more than 1% or 2% of these studios' profits or accounts for a lot more than just 59 cents per subscriber. But when you're looking at what is a $10 a month subscription, that's 5% of a subscription cost. So that was never going to happen. They had to scale that back massively. And what we got for a streaming revenue sharing in the end is very similar to what the WGA worked out for their bonus structure. When a streaming show, movie, documentary, special, whatever it may be, uh, is viewed by at least 20% of a streamer's domestic subscriber base in the first 90 days, uh, the performers within that project become eligible for a bonus. That bonus is pulled from a pool of a $40 million annual fund or $120 million over the length of the three-year deal. This is very interesting because it's kind of a discretionary fund that the union decides who gets what and when based on meeting that requirement. The terms for how that is decided have not been out yet. The unions basically said we will figure that out later, but we have $40 million per year to give to successful shows, movies, projects, and the performers within them. So it'll be really interesting. I know a lot of people are not pleased that that is how far back the union have had to come on streaming revenue, but I don't think it's surprising in the end that it is something very similar to the Writers Guild. And along with this, the studios have once again agreed to share streaming data with the union. That was always going to happen. Uh, the time of studios keeping all of the streaming data to themselves was always going to come to an end and it finally has. Now both unions have that data and they can use that to inform their members or themselves and the industry at large on how certain projects are doing, how certain actors or actresses are doing, everything across the board. So it's great that this data is going to be released finally and we'll get some true numbers behind streaming. It's been kind of an unknown so far. While Netflix will say 90 million hours of this show were watched within one year. We don't really know what that means. How many subscribers are watching it? Are people just throwing it on and just playing for one subscriber over and over again? So getting more specific data of how many subscribers, what percentage, how long are they watching it for is much better for the unions and I believe the industry as a whole. So I have one final point on this bullet, uh, one final bullet point on this deal to talk about. Probably the biggest one, the one that really held this deal up for the longest amount of time, and that is AI protections. Uh, they kept going back and forth in this issue and we finally got an answer and we finally got some protections that uh, most people are pretty happy with, but some people are not happy with. So. First off, the most basic is the studios uh, are now required to obtain clear and conspicuous content of the performer in order to create a digital replica. So that means there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You need to make sure it's clear. There is specific language about signing and initialing at certain points for this consent in order to use a performer's likeness to create a digital replica of them. 
if they create a digital replica and decide to use it, the studios are required to pay the performer for the number of days said performer would have been on set where their digital likeness was used instead. So if their likeness was used in three scenes and the performer would have been on set for 10 days, they owe that performer 10 days of pay for that, which makes perfect sense. You are replacing the work they would have done, the work they would have had with a digital version of it. They should still be paid for that. So that is kind of one of the base concerns and worries regarding these digital, digital, digital replicas of these performers of, if you, if I, even if I allow you to use my likeness and you recreate it, are you then just knocking me out of a job forever? You're knocking me out of pay forever. That is not the case anymore. They have secured pay for these these digital replicas. Not only have they secured pay for the work they're losing out on, but also residuals. If you are using a digital replica on screen, the performer's own residuals for that screen time makes perfect sense. It's work you would have had, residuals you would have had, had this technology not been available. The technology is available. We are at that point and it's only going to become more prevalent. So you have to put protections in place and make sure the pay structure accounts for that. And now it does for these performers, which is a huge win and it's great. If the studio wishes to use the digital replication in a uh, production beyond what the actor was originally employed for, they need a separate, clear, and conspicuous content, as well as additional compensation. So that is to say, if on movie A, you say, yes, you can recreate my likeness digitally, uh, I sign off on it, it's all good, and you're going to pay me for whatever you use my likeness for. If studio then decides, movie B, I want to use your likeness again, I have it ready to go, it's something similar, I would like to just use it again, they need to get consent once again, and they need to pay for it again. That's one of the big things that was one of the biggest concerns when the strike first came out was that the studios were saying, okay, if we decide to recreate your digital likeness, we're going to own that forever and we can decide whatever we want to use it in for in perpetuity. No longer the case. The actors have now own ownership over their digital likeness and every time a studio wants to use it, they have to get consent and they have to pay for it. Um, consent is required before digitally altering a actor's performance as well. This is already something that happens in terms of uh, post-production with editing, but when you're digitally altering the performance beyond the initial scope of the work, you do need consent. What does that initial scope mean? So that means if they're just slightly adjusting hand placement or your facial expression, but they're keeping the work you did within its general scripted scope, they don't need your consent. That's just them doing post-production, essentially. If they are changing your mouth movement for a foreign language dub, they don't need your consent once again. Those exceptions, a lot of people are upset about them because you never know with exceptions in that fine print how far will the studios push the envelope. But at a minimum, it makes sense for now as this technology is still evolving and consent is required before they drastically alter your performance. And then the last AI point I really want to touch on is if a studio is going to use a synthetic performer that is AI generated over a human performer, they must notify and plead the case to the union on why they're doing that. That is massive, I think, for the union. I think it is one of the lesser talked about but more important points in that 
the union will be aware of when the studio is using synthetic AI generated performers, why and how often, and they can use that to better pre prepare and arm themselves for the next labor dispute if AI protections become another major talking point. Overall, I think SAG made out great with this deal. I think the actors union should be very happy. I believe it will be ratified. It's very rare for a union to come to an agreement and a deal and then not follow through on it for the members to reject it. So like I said, right now the strike is over. All we're waiting for is member ratification. That voting starts today. And we're already seeing the after effects of the strike ending. Uh, already actors are out uh, promoting and sharing their work. Timothy Chalamet hosted SNL last weekend and there were some ad bits of him talking about Wonka. One in specific, they started talking about the show and he just yelled out, Wonka, Wonka, I could finally talk about it. I, I think while that is of course a bit in recorded and scripted, I think it's pretty clear. A lot of these actors are passionate about their work. They're excited about it. It's better for their career in the long run if they're able to promote it and it is a success. So they are ecstatic to be able to promote and talk about their work again. It's been 118 days that actors could not talk about any work they've done. We have not heard Bar uh, Margot Robbie talk about Barbie or Kelly Murphy talk about Oppenheimer and what a massive cultural phenomenon and success those movies were since they came out. It was during the premieres of those movies before they were released to general audiences that this strike was announced and put into effect. So I think you're going to see a lot of retroactive promotion. That includes uh, award campaigns. I'm very excited about the award campaigns. Those start now, essentially, as someone like Margot Robbie is going to be out there talking about Barbie because it's up there for best adapted screenplay. It's up there for probably best picture or best comedy at the Golden Globes. She's going to be nominated for numerous acting awards. Same with Ryan Gosling, Leonardo DiCaprio and Killers of the Flower Moon. I could ramble on and on. There's going to be so many awards campaigns that are really going to ramp up. You're going to see these actors everywhere booking every possible late night show, podcast, interview, uh, chicken wing eating interview in order to talk about their projects and their movies as much as possible. And one thing I'm really excited for is some more behind the scenes clips. Uh, one in particular that I already saw was Simu Liu from Barbie, a clip of him singing background vocals on This Is Ken. Something I missed out on and I didn't really think about how much I missed out on it was all the behind the scenes stuff we get from actors and actresses. In the age of social media, once a movie's out, they're able to post almost whatever they want regarding the production from behind the scenes. And I enjoy it. I enjoy the TikTok clips, the camaraderie between co-stars. So I'm really excited to see where this goes, what it means, and just to have Hollywood up and running again. I know a lot of people slam it. If you're listening to this, you're probably not one of those people, but I love Hollywood. I love the glitz, the glamour, the fun, how passionate everyone is that is within the industry. So I'm very excited to see what is next for Hollywood. All right. So that's all I have for the actor strike. Uh, that's a lot there. I highly suggest you go to either Deadline or Variety or The Hollywood Reporter. They have some great articles. I read those articles, got some bullet points before I went to the SAG-AFTRA website and read this summary of the agreement, which is very long. A lot of lawyer talk, legalese in it, and confusing to read at times, but I had to do that in order to get a better understanding, and I actually enjoyed reading it. 
I would suggest just reading articles on the deal if you want more information. I kind of covered some very broad points there. It is very interesting, though, and it is exciting that finally there's a deal and all the Hollywood strikes are over for now. We're going to move on, though. We're going to talk about uh, the most recent release from Marvel. It's time for my review for the Marvels. This movie is the perfect encapsulation of what I'm always saying, which is you have to set your expectations for each and every movie you watch. You can't go in with a bias or expecting something grand and massive. For the Marvels, it was never going to be Guardians Volume 3 with how airtight of a story it was and how great the character progression and conclusions are. It was never going to be the massive scale team up of any of the Avengers movies. You can't expect that. It's not featuring iconic characters or cameos like you get in Spider-Man No Way Home or in Doctor Strange 2. You have to put those kind of expectations and expecting it to be this amazing movie aside. This movie, it really just is what it is. It's fun and it's silly. That's what I took from it more than anything else. I think it, the movie is kind of getting lambasted, especially at the box office, but also critically by reviews from people everywhere because I think they didn't set their expectations. You had the hubbub that was Captain Marvel. It came out in between Infinity War and Endgame. It was a billion-dollar movie. It was the first female-led superhero movie from Marvel. And it introduced the MCU to Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. It had so much going on that it ballooned. And, of course, there was this stupid controversy of people hating Brie Larson. I thought she was good as Captain Marvel. That... The expectations for this just grew and grew. And then the movie was delayed from July to November. So people had to wait and they got concerned. You just have to know what this movie is and know that expectation. And you can really enjoy it. I had a great time at the theater for this. The crowd was lively and energetic and really enjoyed the movie. Granted, that is to be expected. I went opening weekend for a Marvel movie. The movies are traditionally very front-loaded. All of the Marvel fans go that opening weekend to avoid spoilers and see the movie as quickly as possible. But it was funny. It was a good time. Everyone was laughing, and you can just sense an air of enjoyment from the theater. When it ended, there was almost a collective sigh of relief because all week you'd been hearing about the Marvels is terrible. It's going to do terrible at the box office. It's not good. Is this the end of the MCU? For those that were in the theater and watched it, you kind of felt this like, okay, that was decent. It was good. It was probably in, in the middle of the pack for the MCU, trending towards the upper half. It's nowhere near one of the best, but it's definitely well above the worst. I think the humor is truly top tier. It's just pure comedy. It's not really gimmicky, which when I think of gimmicky comedy in terms of the MCU, I think of Thor, Love, and Thunder. Uh, a lot of gimmicks and bits. I don't think Love and Thunder has a high rewatchability for me. I think the Marvels will. I think it's that perfect level of silliness and fun that I will want to rewatch it. But a lot of the criticisms in this movie are pretty valid. I, I think it's pretty clear that this movie has been massively overly edited. Uh, I heard some other people and read some people talking about why, and it seems to be a response to Quantum Mania. That movie was pretty panned critically and by audiences. It was not what people hoped for. It was not what they wanted. And they were upset walking out of that movie. And it seems like after that Disney, or shortly after Quantumania, that Disney delayed the Marvels. And it seems 
Quantumania was why, and as a result, they edited this movie way down to just what people wanted. And before I get into what that means, what people wanted, where did that really hurt the movie? And I think most notably it was the villain. It was a poor villain. It wasn't iconic by any means. I would say it wasn't remarkable anywhere near it, and it, she wasn't even memorable. I can barely remember her name. It was like Dar Ben or something like that. I could be wrong. I could just be making something up. That's how bad of a villain it was. While you saw their motivations, there was no characterization of this villain. You barely saw them. It was just saying one line, what her name for Captain Marvel over and over again, and that's it. So while Marvel has traditionally been known to not have great villains, they had kind of rectified some of that. People were really excited about Kang. Uh, Christian Bale as... Gore, the God Butcher, was really good, albeit not getting enough screen time. Killmonger was great in Black Panther. Of course, Thanos was entered the pantheon of iconic villains. The Marvels has kind of returned to early Marvel days where the villain is the weakest point of the film in a very noticeable way. On the other side, Disney said we need to make this movie just what people want and what they enjoy. And Based on how this movie came out, it seemed what everyone was most excited for was Iman Vellani and her big screen debut as Miss Marvel. Absolutely the star of this movie. She is a rising star. She is incredible. Her family, her character, everything is the heart of this movie and so much fun. And it's a real shame that the actors could not promote this movie, especially her, because I remember seeing clips of her on the red carpet for the Miss Marvel premiere on Disney+, and she is just so pure in how much it means to her to be in the MCU. She is a Marvel fan and nerd right there alongside all of us. She cares about it deeply, and she just has so much fun being a part of this world now. I think the movie would have done better if she could have been out promoting it, because it's just her character is electric, and the charisma bleeds through the screen, and Highlight of the movie. I'm so excited that we hopefully get to see more of her in the future. I think despite the bad box office and financial reception this movie is getting and some of the bad critical responses, pretty much everyone is saying that is nothing against Iman Vellani. She is the heart of this movie. She is the best part of this movie. She takes this from what is a mediocre movie to a, hey, that wasn't so bad movie. Um, I think it's, hey, that was actually pretty good. But it's because of her. She absolutely elevates this movie another level. But she's not the only one in it. After all, it is the Marvels. So then you have Tayona Paris as Monica Rambeau. I really enjoyed her. I would love to see more of her character going forward in the MCU. We are introduced to her in WandaVision. We're finally getting more of her. And I, I want to see that continue. I want to see more of her relationship with Carol Danvers, with... Kamala Khan, I am loving this relationship they started building. I would actually love to get a The Marvels 2 one day. I think this trio had great chemistry and worked very well in tandem together. And then you can't talk about The Marvels without talking about Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. This is essentially Captain Marvel 2, and I think Carol Danvers, Brie Larson, I, I think she's far improved in this movie. More character, more personality than anything else we've seen from her. She was good in Captain Marvel. That's a movie that I always think is worse than it actually is. But her character was just drowned out in all the cameos she made in the Avengers movies. And it was great to see more of her and to get her actually have some characterization and development 
and see her not as just the big heavy hitter that can do anything. She's not sidelined to the latter half of the film to save the day. Save the day. She's front and center right there with Kamala Khan and Monica Rambeau. And once again, it's that chemistry. It really carried the movie and makes this a delight in my opinion and one that I absolutely will revisit and I'm excited to revisit. The Marvels is getting a 7.2 out of 10. It's on the lower end for what I typically want to give a Marvel movie. It's not my bottom Marvel movie of the year. That belongs to Ant-Man and the Wasp, but it is what it is. That's Once again, if you haven't seen this yet and you plan on seeing it, set your expectations. It's not going to blow your socks off. It's not amazing. At times, you're going to ask what's going on, but in the end, it's fun and you can just have a good time watching this movie and that would be that. Let's talk about the MCU as a whole because they're at kind of a crossroads in a very interesting time and a lot of people are talking about it with a negative, within a negative limelight kind of as of late from what I'm seeing. So the first thing we have to look at when you're looking at this negative reception the MCU is getting lately is the box office performance. It is no secret at this point. The Marvels opened to $46 million on its opening weekend, which is the lowest ever in the MCU. That's a real tough pill to swallow for Disney and Marvel Studios when you are 15 years into this cinematic universe to hit your lowest ever. You would have hoped that would be earlier. You would have hoped you keep, if not keep improving, you don't drop all the way down and have to essentially reset your standard and graph. So that's pretty brutal. Like I said, I think the actor strike had a big portion of this. I think the movie being delayed hurt it quite a bit. Any number of factors really hurt the Marvel specifically, but this is a symptom of a much bigger problem for Disney and Marvel Studios. And that box office performance hasn't been poor just for the Marvels. When you look at Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, it did just $214 million domestically. That is pretty comparable to the previous Ant-Man and the Wasp movie, which is not good, especially when Quantumania is meant to introduce your next big villain. That's what they're promoting it as, as they're highlighting for the entire run up to the movie that Kang is our next big villain. You have to see Quantumania to be ready. You don't have to worry about Disney Plus shows that much for this. You just have to watch Quantumania and then you're set. And for it to be comparable to Ant-Man and the Wasp is not ideal. And it's just been a string of not great box office performances. Look at Thor Love and Thunder from last year. It pulled in $760 million worldwide. In a vacuum, that's Good. That is good for a movie to do. Compared to Thor Ragnarok, it did $100 million less when Thor going into Love and Thunder was at his highest point ever. He was beloved after the reimagination of the character in Thor Ragnarok. He came out great from Infinity War and Endgame. People were excited about his character and what was next. And Love and Thunder did not perform well. People walked out of that kind of like, mm, I wanted more. I walked out thinking, you know, this had the potential to be great, but a little gimmicky. The villain was underutilized. I am not sure what they're doing with Thor. So box office wise, not fantastic. And a big portion of that, of why I'm saying these numbers like 760 million worldwide is not great is because of the production budgets. Disney, Marvel Studios, comic books as a whole, but 
in general, Marvel Studios has a real problem with their production budget right now being overinflated. Since since Shang-Chi came out in 2021, there's not been a single Marvel Studios film underneath a $200 million budget. That's eight straight movies above $200 million. If you look at that, starting with Iron Man, the they didn't hit eight movies at $200 million until Avengers Endgame. So that's that entire span of only eight movies. Half of those are Avengers movies. One of them is... Captain America Civil War, which is an Avengers light movie. It's really tough when those budgets are so big to find financial successes because you're setting the bar way too high. And not only financially has that bar been set too high, but I think critically, the standard for Marvel is much higher than it used to be. And it's very hard to live up to that standard. They're getting much less wiggle room. Where previously something like, I disagree with this take, but people would say Iron Man 2 had a terrible villain. No one cares about Whiplash. It would get a pass because of everything around it, and you'd get Tony Stark again very shortly after with a great villain. So we could get around that. Marvel doesn't have that wiggle room anymore. People are going to be harping on these bad villains for much longer. They're going to be nitpicking, looking for the mistakes, the errors, where Disney didn't do what they tried to do, which is... Unfortunate. They keep missing the mark and nothing has really blown everyone away. Guardians Volume 3 is kind of an outlier when you look at everything since really No Way Home. People expected a little bit more from Doctor Strange. Black Panther, of course, suffered with the loss of Chadwick Boseman. Thor Love and Thunder wasn't what it couldn't live up to the hype that Ragnarok built for Thor. The Marvels is not getting a great reception. Guardians is a real outlier in terms of its critical reception since No Way Home. And why? what's causing this from Marvel Studios? Why are people feeling this way? And why is that expectation so much higher? Why are they, why is there now a bias to a negative viewpoint? I think the biggest thing we have to look at and think about is there is way too much content from Marvel Studios. Let's start small scale. I was talking about the Marvels, so what do you need to watch in order to fully grasp what is going on in the Marvels? Well, first you have to watch Captain Marvel. The original movie introduces us to Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel as a character. That's an obvious, this is essentially a Captain Marvel sequel. Well, then you have to watch Miss Marvel, the Disney Plus show, because she's in this movie. She's a featured player in this movie. You have to know her character. But wait, there's also Monica Rambeau. Where can you learn about her? From WandaVision. Oh, but then Carol Danvers appeared in Avengers Endgame, so I have to watch Endgame in order to get more of her. Also, I have to watch Hawkeye to fully grasp what's going on in the world and the story. Oh, and then I have to watch Thor Love and Thunder because another character makes an appearance. Oh, also there was Secret Invasion, which featured the Skrulls and the Kree. So there's four shows and three movies you have to watch just to be ready for the Marvels. It's just too much to keep up with. Let's go back and look at a movie like Ant-Man. With Ant-Man, you didn't have to watch anything. Ant-Man and the Wasp, you had to watch really two movies to be up to date. You had to watch the original Ant-Man and you had to watch Captain America Civil War. With those two movies, if you just watched those, you could watch Ant-Man and the Wasp and be ready and be set and be good to go. You would have no questions. You'd fully understand the story. 
when what was that seven years ago you only need to watch two movies to watch the next movie now there's three movies and four shows just to watch one movie that's a real issue most casual fans don't want to watch that much it's too much content that is really too readily available i've had that issue myself where i'm not even fully cut up caught up because i have the disney plus subscription I'm like oh it's not going anywhere I know Loki Season 2 and Secret Invasion will always be there. I don't have to rush to watch them. That's a problem for Disney. That's a massive problem for them. And it's not just the content you have to watch to be up to date. It's just an oversaturation. When we're looking at the total content, content they put out between Iron Man, which was released in 2008, and Civil War in 2016... There were 13 movies. That was all the Marvel content in that eight-year span, 13 movies to be fully caught up. Now, if we go from Captain Marvel to the Marvels, so Captain Marvel to its sequel, The Marvels, 2019 to 2023, in just four years, that's 12 movies and 10 shows. In half the amount of time, it is nearly double the amount of content to watch. It's way too much. It's, it's impossible to keep up with. They desperately need to slow down and I think in terms of that slowing down, it's also the lack of reoccurring characters. Captain Marvel didn't get her second movie until four years after the fact. In the previous edition, phases one through three, you'd be introduced to a character like Doctor Strange. Within two years, you were seeing him again in Infinity War. Or Ant-Man, you see him again in Civil War, and then Ant-Man and the Wasp, and then Endgame. Like, you're getting this continued progression of introduced to a character, character makes a cameo, character gets their sequel. When you look at what's come out in recent phases, so many characters have not returned since their introduction. From Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, we have not seen any more Ironheart, we have not seen any more from Namor. We have not seen any more from Shuri's Black Panther. There's so much not returning from that one movie. We have seen nothing from Shang-Chi since that movie came out. Nothing from The Eternals since that came out. From Doctor Strange, there's a uh, cameo in the post credit scene. No follow-up on since that. From Hawkeye, we've seen nothing from Kate Bishop, Daredevil, or Echo. Now, Echo Show is about to come out, but it's almost three years after the fact. It's too long. People aren't still interested in that character. They need to turn it around quicker and promote it better. And She-Hulk and Moon Knight, two entire Disney Plus shows we have seen no follow-up on whatsoever. So something needs to change. They need to stop expanding horizontally. They keep adding new stories and new characters over and over again instead of progressing existing characters or stories forward. They really need to scale that back and progress things forward. And I think they have a chance to do it. And I think they're really going to try to reshape the MCU with what's coming up. So what is coming up? What's next for the MCU? Well, currently there's only one movie on their schedule from Marvel Studios in 2024. That's Deadpool 3 in July of next year. I really believe... Deadpool 3 is going to change a lot of what's going on in the MCU. It's going to kind of reroute them and put them on the path they need to be on to get their critical and financial reception back on track. Then currently there's three movies on the slate in 2025. You have Captain America, Brave New World. You have Fantastic Four and Thunderbolts. 
I don't think all three of those will stay. I could actually realistically say one of the see one of those movies almost being dropped off the schedule entirely for now, but it will be interesting. Luckily, next year there's only two new Disney Plus shows that tie into the MCU. That would be Echo and Agatha, both spinoff shows from previous Disney Plus shows. That's what they need to be doing. They need to be pushing the stories forward. If you're gonna put out six Disney Plus shows in two years, well. By the end of that two years, you need to have follow-ups, whether it's a season two, like they've done with Loki, and Loki is still being well-received because it has a quick follow-up, because people are still invested in that story and they're looking for more of it. That's, I, they need to move the story forward. They need to stop expanding and adding new characters. It's time to progress. That's my opinion. I still love Marvel. I still love the MCU. I will be at every opening weekend for all their movies. I am actively looking forward to getting caught up on all their shows and what's coming next, but it's too much. And I'm hoping to see a change in the next year. Seems that way if they only have one movie coming out. So that's my whole MCU spiel. It It's always going to happen whenever there's a new Marvel release. I'm going to check in on the state of the MCU. It's likely I won't talk about it again for quite some time. If they don't have a new movie coming out till July of next year and I talk about film here. I'm not really going to dive into the Disney Plus shows too much. So the MCU is kind of on hold and in a purgatory until we see what Deadpool 3 does. And I'm very excited. All right. Like I said, it's been two weeks since I last did an episode. Let me tell you, I've watched a lot of new movies in that time and a lot of movies at home. For my at home watching, there's seven movies I want to talk about. I plan to talk to you about after Sun, Now You See Me, A Few Good Men, Nomad Land, Love and Other Drugs, The Intern. Some of these may get relegated to just a TikTok clip, but I do want to talk about all of those movies eventually. And then I've seen seven new releases. All of these will be talked about in some format, whether they're rapid fire reviews or full deep dives. I have the Royal Hotel, Faux, Dicks, the musical. Quiz Lady, Anatomy of a Fall, Priscilla, and The Killer. Multiple Oscar contenders in that list. Multiple movies that are really interesting and really good that I think you should absolutely watch. So next time I'm back here, it's going to be a heavy episode of just movie reviews. We're diving right in. I'm going to maybe touch on some box office for some of them, but I have to get back to talking about movies. So look forward to that next time. And thank you for stopping by. This was a fun episode to go through these topics that I've been passionate about for so long, like the MCU, like the SAG strike, ecstatic that the strike is over and the industry is getting back to some semblance of normalcy. And hopefully I can get back to some normalcy and talking about these movies and watching movies as frequently as possible. Make sure you follow me on all my socials, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd, at Sidekick Critic. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby. This has been the Sidekick Critic Podcast. See you next time.